Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Happy Friday, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Latitude's In Session Podcast. Today on the line, I have a guy from Kentucky, Stone Cold Killer. He puts on a ton of miles every year, runs a ton of cameras trying to find giant deer, and he chases them around. I'm talking about none other than Josh Prophet. Josh, thanks for coming on the show, man. What's up, man? I appreciate you coming on today. I know that you worked and then got a workout in, and glad you can make a little bit of a time for this. It's, uh, it's the time of year, man starting to think about cameras. I've been putting batteries in my cameras for the last three nights. I bought a giant pack, 500 pack of lithiums, and I've been plugging away down here just trying to get them set up and ready to go. So I know you're doing the same thing, man. But uh, today's podcast, I'd really like to jump into your trail camera tactics. And the reason for that is I've listened to you on podcasts for a long time, followed you for a long time, and really respect what you're doing out in the woods. I know that you put a ton of miles in you are running a ton of cameras, you're collecting data, you're very detailed and analytical. And I want to run right through all of that and your entire process. And then when we get done with that, I kind of want to talk about some of your thoughts, how you've changed throughout the years, like we were talking about offline a little bit with simplifying things a little bit and not needing this detailed approach all the time necessarily. So really excited for the show today, man. Let's, uh, let's jump right into it if you're good with that. I'm good, man. Hit me with it. We're going to start basic and we're going to get, we're going to get more high level as we go. So starting out, I want to get into what brands of cameras are you running? What type of batteries you run in? What type of SD cards? If somebody doesn't run cameras and they want to run cameras, where do they need to start? Honestly, if they're not running cameras and they want to get into it, I would just go buy something cheap from Walmart. You know, there's no reason to go spend a bunch of money. I'm a firm believer like it. It's not for everyone, you know, but a lot of people that do it do get addicted to it. You know, we got several people, including me, that's got busy chasing pictures and not deer. But man, I would start at Walmart, get something cheap, get a few of them, see how you like it. If you do like it, then, you know, upgrade. There's, man, there's so many good uh, companies out there right now. Obviously, I've ran only Exodus since 2016. 
Chad and I, we've developed a great relationship. Their cameras have been nothing but good to me. So yeah, that's that's pretty much what I've been doing. But I mean, if you want to take it back, I think I started running trail cameras in 2000, right around 2000, about the first, when they very first started coming out. So I've been running cameras for over 20 years, I'd say. I don't remember that far back, but I remember my grandpa had the ones where you had to run the the big. Nine boats. I, I had nine boats in some of mine and sea batteries. Did you? Yeah, I remember those days. They wouldn't last very long. We'd run them on just like a field edge for maybe a month and they'd be dead. And then we used to pull them because we thought everybody was going to steal them. So we would never have in-season data. We would only have summer data because we'd always pull them out of the woods when season came around. So the process has changed quite a bit, but okay. So mainly Exodus cameras now, and how many cameras are you running? What are you up to? I was around 120. Two years ago, I had them wiped out. I had, I sold my house. I had all of my hunting stuff in a storage unit. It got wiped clean, $25,000 worth of nothing but hunting stuff. Lost a lot of my cameras. I bought some, Chad took care of me. I'd say right now I'm around 60, 60 SD, or I'd say 45 SD cameras, 15 cell cameras. I'm very similar to that. Few less cells, but lots of SD cams. Personally, for myself, I still have the cheaper ones. I just can't afford you know, the money yet to do that. So I run wild views. You can find them on sale in like Midway USA for like 25, 30 bucks. And I've went too far down the budget path before to where when they take a picture, you can't even see tines. It's just frame. And I've, I've came back a little bit and said, okay, I need to spend a little bit more money. Now I'm at the point where I can see tines pretty good. And the wild views hold up for me for a couple of years. So as far as batteries, what are you running these cameras? So I would say by September, I don't have them all out just because I typically move them and it just, I do have a lot more time now than what I used to have. I make my own schedule now, but still I'm limited. So I typically try to have about 20 out and I honestly don't feel like I need more than that because through the summer, you and I both know the chances are if you find one good buck, you found two or three or four, you know, so I don't, and I actually run just straight alkaline in them through the summer, just Duracells, Energizers. And then I'd say about October, I start switching to, to lithiums. Now in my cell cameras, I do run lithiums with solar panels on every one of them. I run lithiums in all mine, but they're getting expensive. So I found Energizer has the Ultimates, which is like the highest end lithium battery you can buy. And now they came out with an industrial, which is a little bit below that just to save money. I want to say on the 500 pack, I saved like maybe 50 cents a battery. So save quite a bit of money by doing that. And I don't know how they're going to work yet. So I, I got them for this year. I'm going to test them out. But awesome, man. As far as uh, as far as far SD cards, what are you running? I always make sure that they're a pretty fast card and that they're at least 16 gig because all of my, all of my cameras, you know, they soak and I hardly ever delete my pictures. So I mean, I delete them, but it may be four months worth of pictures before I check it. Are you running any cameras on video mode or are they all on photo mode? All on photo. It's only because it takes me so long to check them. You know what I mean? Like it just takes so long to go through those videos. I love the video modes, you know, like the, the Lift 2 is 30 frames per second, 1080p. It's real clear. And another thing is the battery life because I just can't get to the cameras. I run them all on on photos, but I do love the video for sure. I think you can maybe get a maybe get a little bit more intel from a video. Yeah, I would say the same. I, I think that there's more intel to be had with the videos, but I run them all in photos for the same reasons. A lot of these spots are, you know, a couple miles back. Some of them I won't even get to check throughout season. I'll check them like September. 
And I might not even get back into that area if I'm chasing a deer around somewhere else. And the last thing that I want to have happen is that SD card fill up with videos and then I missed out on three months of Intel. A picture for Intel is better than no video because the SD card's full. So as far as hanging them, are you, I know some guys say they hang all of them high. Some guys say they hang them all low. Where are you at as far as that goes? Two foot off the ground to on the ground. Um, this year, I'm going to hang some of them high. I think a lot of people hang them high because they don't want people to steal them. If I get one camera stolen a year, I it was a bad year. Like last year, I didn't lose any. I don't even think I lost any SD cards. Years ago, I was locking the actual door on the camera, and I had some cameras stolen, so I quit locking the door thinking that they would actually take the SD card. And I, I really felt like that helped. But for the last three years, man, I, I haven't lost any, and I just hang them about right where you should. Um, if it's a real high traffic area with people, I, sometimes I do put them on the ground, like an inch off the ground. The detection zone is still really good. A, a lot of people, deer included, they they look over them. But you got to watch it, you know, come late season, snow and stuff that those guys up north, they can't do that. Like I can down here in Kentucky. Snow's not a real big issue here. But I'd say all in all, mine are just right there, you know, like waist level. Yeah, mine are very similar. I, I run them. It's all situational. And I've gotten to the mindset before where I was like, okay, I'm going to run every single camera that I have high. And I've came back from that and I started running a lot low after listening to you. I'll tell you what, man, running them low, I would have people walk right by them, have deer walk right by them. I even go as far as like brushing them in a little bit. And I don't use the strap that comes with it. I use mechanics wire and I take a pair of pliers with me. That way it rusts up a little bit and almost looks like camo and people can't see that strap anymore. So let's get into the time of year we're at right now. So everybody's getting their cameras ready. They're getting the batteries in them, the cards in them, and getting excited about getting cameras out. I'd like to go through your summertime strategy as far as when you're hanging your cameras and how often you're checking them. Primarily right now, I'm going to go out next week and my goal is next week to get five cell cameras up. I don't know if I'll take any SD cameras up. I'm going to try to get five up this next week and then maybe five to 10 more the following week after that. So hopefully 10 cells and maybe five SD uh, cameras in the month of July. I'm I'm running behind this year because I've been dealing with some managing a private farm here. Um, but I, that's where I'm going to start at and I'm going to go straight to the food source um, for two reasons. Number one, that's where a lot of the deer is going to be at right now. And here it's beans. And number two, like the deer, they really, they don't leave the beans. They may not be able to stay out in the beans right now because they're so short. But like, this is one of the times of the years that when people say like the deer are really bedded close, like they really are bedded close. You know what I mean? And then when them beans get higher, I've seen it so much, the deer just won't leave them. Um, I typically stay away from water because what a lot of people don't realize is a deer gets over 60% of his water from eating from vegetation. Uh, I don't think a lot of people know that. It's not something that's talked about a lot. I just, I stay away from water. It's too far and in between. There's too many, there. I mean, there's too many places to put them. I've tried it, man. I put cameras on beat down water hose that look like they're beat down and it's the same six does and two bucks using it. In all reality, when you start really learning about a deer and the habitat and the management side, they, they get their water intake from eating. That makes a lot of sense to me. So it's mainly bean fields. Have you ever tried putting cameras on like short corn fields at all? I've heard guys talk about deer being out in the corn early. Yep, I have early season and I and they will eat it. I know they will eat it. 
So if there's no beans around and there's not too much, it's it's so tough this time of year because a deer can digest over 600 things. They can literally eat anything from the dirt in the ground. So it makes it tough. But this farm, that this new piece of public that I'm hunting, it's got a lot of corn on it. And I got a feeling I'm going to stick some down on the edges between the woods and, and the and the corn. So you start out with cells and you obviously don't have to go check those. At what point will you start running SD cams in those areas where you have the cell cams? Are you looking for verification of a good deer? Yep. Yep. I will. Um, just trying to put the dots together just because what I said this time of year, man, the deer are so close to those bean fields here. And I'm sure wherever we're, whoever's listening to this, like they, they're staying close to the food sources. I think they're closer to the food sources now than they are late season. I actually think it's the complete opposite. I've seen them walk miles every day, late season to go to a food source. And it's not that way in the summer. It's too hot. It's too thick. Um, so I'd say I will swap those out probably about September. And that's when I'll start putting a lot of my cell cameras on the scrapes and stuff, getting them ready. Um, just because that's when I see that the scrape activity really picks up when they're in velvet, you know, right around September. And then that's where I go from there. So with all your SD cams you're running, are you are you running those in the immediate area or are you broadcasting those out just trying to find other deer in other places? Or are you saving those for later in the season? I typically put those at places that I can get to them sooner. Not necessarily what's what or what deer's here or what's going on. I just put them to where I can get to them closer. And, you know, just as well as I do, like you may have some dynamite spots two miles back and you just can't get a cell camera to it. But it's all about time management and trying to be efficient. That's how I look at it because, you know, I've scouted so much more than I've hunted. And there's a fine line that I ride in between hunting and scouting. And scouting's way above hunting. So I just typically try to keep those SD cameras where I can get to them closer. Like this last year, late season, I was catching, and we're not talking, I know I'm talking late season, but I was catching like vehicles on the road. And all I was trying to do was to stay away from the food, to stay away from the bedding and to literally see like which deer, I, I knew where they were bedding and I knew where they were eating. So I didn't need to go in there. I just wanted to see like which deer was going there. And then, so I was just finding some just beat down trails, literally like crossing the road, like common sense stuff. Like we've all seen them driving down the gravel road slow and be like, man, look at that game trail right there. And then I would literally go up in the woods 50 yards and have a 150 on it, you know? So that's, that's how I try to run those. I try to keep them to where I, I can get to them probably within 20 minutes. It's funny you say that because last year, for example, I ended up coming up with a system in my head and I shift back and forth across the map pretty much every year. I'm like evolving my strategy. But last year, my strategy was have five core areas and just run a ton of cameras in each one of those systems because I, I was really confident in the fact that there would be a good deer in there. And there ended up not being good deer in there. So I had too many cameras in there. But what that was is a lot of these systems for me to go check those 10 cameras was an entire day of scouting. I'm talking wake up, be down there at daybreak, hike all day to check 10 cams and get out of that system, rate it dark, completely shot with no intel. And I started thinking about it and I was like, there's got to be a more efficient way. And I think the efficient way, what I've been doing on the map this year and anticipating I'm going to do going into the next couple of weeks is finding these systems that set up sub 20 minutes from the road where I can drop in off the road into either a bottom or a ridge and run it out down into a system and hang an SD cam. And then I can go in there and check that more efficiently. So 
instead of checking one system per day, I might be able to drive to 10 of these spots and check a camera. And now my efficiency with finding a deer in my eyes anyways, went way up because I'm covering so much more ground just because I can drive to those spots as opposed to just boots on the ground the whole time. It's a balancing act, you know, like figuring out efficiency for your own strategy is such a balancing act. And I'm sure you've shifted back and forth with that throughout the years as well. My hunting strategies and stuff have looked like a roller coaster the last eight years. Like I've probably talked about stuff on podcast in 2016 or 17 that I don't even do now. You know, if I'm to shoot you straight and you're right, like, you, you touched on like one thing you said was like you you put these places not too far away. And like I've learned that like some of these places, man, can be dynamite that are just right there. And even though they're they're getting hunted, you have to go in there like with the mindset, knowing that like that's the hardest thing for a public land hunter is like running into somebody like seeing two vehicles in the parking lot. But after doing this for 15, 16 years, like you realize, you start to realize like the deer are there and they can literally just get around the people and they're very good at it until November. So if you, even though there may be, let's say a, a couple people hunting a hub that's 15 minutes off the road, that doesn't mean that the deer aren't there. That And that doesn't mean that you can't kill one there. So. Yeah. And so that's what I found with my brother last fall. He came down in November and I hung the bow up to film him. And we got into a system that was getting hunted pretty hard, but we just had one hub where there was doe bedding all around and there was a bunch of tracks going down through that bottom. So we sat it and we had three different encounters with good bucks. He was trying to figure out how to kill his first deer. So he'd, he'd draw back at the wrong time or the wrong side of a tree or, you know, every, we've all been there. Every, every mistake that could be had was had last fall, but we had a lot of success. I mean, that spot was like 15 minutes from a road, not far at all. And, you know, there's a lot to be said about going back to the basics. I think where you're talking about driving down the road and you see a trail and you put a camera on it and there's a 150 there. And, you know, if I, when I was a kid, I feel like I had so much success getting on big deer compared to other people in the area. And I think that a lot of that was, I was so open-minded to anything where I was just, I'd see a trail and I'm like, oh, there's a deer trail. I'm going to put a camera on it. And oh, here's another one. And then as I got better at this and evolved, I started building up these tendencies in my head or what I thought deer were going to do. And that's kind of shaped my hunting strategy. But I think that we, we think we know more than we know. At least I do. I think a lot of times I think I know more than I do. And sometimes it's the easy basic stuff where the deer are hanging out and we just overlook it. Like I'm thinking this deer is six miles back in a hub where nobody goes and he could be 50 yards off the road. We have no idea. Each year there's new deer in every area. So something to be said about driving down the road, getting back to the basics and just trying to find deer. Yep. I agree. Do you find yourself running cameras in more of like a kill location throughout the sea? Like you, I guess you're shifting them to scrapes. Are you anticipating that scrape being a kill location? Is that why you move them there? Or are you just looking to maintain that intel of the deer and then you'll hunt them on the fly? I keep it so simple. If I'm going, like, I typically personally try to stay out of an area that's less than 5,000 acres. And I'm not saying that don't hurt me, but I do. Just because I can't, I run the deer out if I don't. I, you know, that's how I am. I like to scout and hunt and that's how I hunt. But obviously I look for the, the same things that we all look for. The hubs, the, the pinch points, the foods, the... You know, all that stuff I look for. But one thing that I really try to do is like I try to think outside the box and say I got 5,000 acres and I got 100 cameras. And I realize nobody, a lot of people don't have that. I literally will grid it out. You know, like I need one over here. Even if there, it doesn't look that good, dude, I found some of my best places that don't make any sense. 
And like, I can't say that I've always figured it out, but the deer are there. I may be able to learn like, well, they're definitely bedding back here, but it's freaking December. Why are they going? I can't figure it out. Like, why are they going this way? So I will try to, to, to like space my cameras out as much as I can. Scrapes are my hands down my favorite. I don't say that I normally put mine in kill locations because I try to use just my woodsmanship on that. You know what I mean? Um, but I will say, and I'm not afraid to say it, that I put some cameras out and most of the time they're not cell cameras and I'll check them and I'll be like, oh, like I need to hunt above this camera. There's been 27 bucks here in 20 days. They're 125 to 190 like it's a no-brainer like swallow your pride and hunt over that scrape or it may be 40 yards away where it just set up a little bit better for your wind or whatever but basically no not all of mine are mine are just in the general area of where deer will be and then you know when i get a good picture of a buck i tell everybody like the three w's like when where and why i figure out you know like where they're coming from where they're going and why they're doing it and I can't always figure that out. Like I, I can't, but sometimes I can, but like the picture doesn't lie, you know, like man, between nine in the morning and at noon, there's a couple good deer here every, every few days. So, I mean, I'd be stupid not to be hunting real close to that, you know, wherever I can get my wind the best, wherever that I think the deer can get away with the most, because that's where I think people mess up. They set themselves up for them and they don't think about the deer you know, so a lot of times when I do go in a place, I get away with as much as I can, which isn't a lot. I get busted a lot and it gives the deer a big edge. Like my shot window is pretty small just because of my wind. I give the deer a better advantage because I feel like that's why he's in there. Yeah, I totally get that. And I might not look at it from the exact kill location as far as that advantage goes, but a lot of times I'll look at it from the system. Uh, the deer I killed two two years ago, for example, he was bedded on a south facing slope and he was we had a north wind that day so it was leeward but i had to come in from the north so he had a really good advantage you know i be, on my access i didn't beat his wind by much at all and i didn't beat his sight or his hearing either and then i circled back around and when i finally got to the kill tree to be honest with you i was pretty bulletproof because my wind was in my face and everything was the way i needed it but getting to that kill tree was the hard part so i don't always feel like it's the exact kill tree but it's there's going to be something that he has to his advantage that you have to try to beat one way or the other i agree a lot of my deer i've killed not all of them are killed on like a marginal wind like a cross a cross wind not dead in my face i'm anticipating a deer to come from this way and most of them do but if he comes from this way like it He's going 150 yards away. I may not even see him. Yeah. That's that's what I'm saying. Yeah, that that makes all the sense in the world to me. And I follow a lot of guys. Uh, Troy Pottinger is a great example of that, too. And that's, you know, he's setting up his kill scrapes based on the same type of things where he wants to have that terrain feature and that like a tree falling down to steer that deer just to be able to beat the wind of that deer. And you, it sounds like you're doing the exact same thing. I think that there's a reason that you're you're highly successful. So how are you determining what scrape to run your cell cams on when you shift them? Like, is it a, are you finding community scrapes? Are you making a mock? What's your thought process with that? Because you have a deer in a bean field. Where are you going from there? Not far off of it, wherever I think you can get the advantage. And basically, let's say I got 5,000 acres and I got it all covered. I really only got about three places that I like to hunt and they may be small, three or 400 acres. And those I'm in them three or 400 acres because I'm stacking my odds. I've never been a big buck hunter. The biggest deer back here is 146, but there may, there may legit be 10 Pope and Youngs hitting that scrape. And so I like, I know like that's my highest percent 
to be. So that's where I'm going to go. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. That does make a lot of sense to me. This can't, you can make it complicated, but I try not to, you know what I mean? Because most of these bucks I've killed up here, like I've, I've done it the right way, but it hasn't, I can't say that it's been real hard in the moment. Like the work coming up to it has been substantial, but from the time I seen to the time I kill him, you know, it was One thing that I focus on a lot down here and right or wrong is I try to anticipate the shift that's going to happen. And, you know, we don't have as many fields necessarily like wrapped up in the hills where I'm at, where right now there's not many acorns in the woods, or at least normally there's not. This year's kind of a a different story. But uh, so normally I'll go around and glass all the fields that are within like a couple miles of these systems. And I'll find a lot of good bucks out in those fields. And what I normally do is if I find a good one, I've already done a ton of scouting with bedding and everything else. I have a general idea where I think the big deer are going to live and it's all in my head. You know, it's nothing's, nothing's a guarantee at all. But what I'll typically do if I glass a good one is I'll run up in that system on the public where the white oaks are at or where the good red oaks are at, those good flats. And I'll hang some cameras up coming off that bedding, coming down through some of the hubs and stuff, trying to catch that deer when he shifts back. So my question for you is with running hundreds of cameras every year for, you know, since like you said, 20 years, roughly, you've been running a ton of cameras. How do you feel about the shift that happens? Like, what's your thought process and what you've seen with the data in your cameras about deer shifting throughout summer? It's it's big and the historical data, I ain't going to say it's out the window, but it kind of is. Like, I got buddies and they do great with the historical data, but things here, you know, I'm right here in the prime of the prime and the hunting pressure's high. Um, the food plots on these, on these state properties are rotated. So the deer, it's, it's always changing. That's why you got to do the in-season scouting, you know, the 24-7, 365. I don't see a lot of the historical stuff. I, I just don't, you know, and it's because of hunting pressure and it's because of food plot rotation and crop rotation. But the shift that you're talking about, it's pretty big. It's, it's exactly like you said. If I see this deer in this bean field, you best bet I'm going to be looking for some high grounds with some white oaks or some red oaks. <laughs> Something that's going to start dropping because they will start dropping in late September. Some of them will. That's where I'll start moving some cameras. And those will be my ST cameras, typically, um, because they'll be dead for a while until the deer start to make those shifts and the deer here start making those shifts right around September, just whenever the beans start changing, because they'll here, they'll walk through everything for beans. They'll almost walk through a corn pile on some of the private ground to get to the beans. But as soon as two of them leaves change in that hundred acre field, it's like, I don't know, it's like a ghost town. I do it exactly how you do it. And, and a lot of that stuff right there, like is historic. Like I know there's 10 white oaks on this point, but I do got to walk back there and make sure there's white oaks on the tree. And then the nightmare is every tree has a million on it. And then re- that's what makes it the hardest because a lot of these, these public lands I'm hunting, like they're big timber and there's a lot of white oaks, a lot of red oaks, a lot of birds, just all kinds of oaks. And dude, when they're all dropping billions, it's toss up. Like I'll be man enough to say it. Like they could be anywhere. Yeah, it's almost like when there's no acorns. Like the worst case scenario for me is no acorns or acorns on every tree. I like it somewhere in the middle of that. You're right. You're you're right. Like I like it in the middle, somewhere in the middle. And it's hard to find it like that where you find good pockets of them. Like everybody else is saying, man, I ain't seen many acorns this year, but 
man, I got two ridges that got 40 trees on them a piece and they're raining right now. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's just, it really is just like the old timers say, like, dude, they, that's from September and October, dude, that's what they want for sure. Yeah. For sure. That That's the food that they want. That is the exact shift I make. I find the deer in the summer in the beans. Most of them are in the beans, not all of them. And then I will check the points, the high grounds for white oaks, red oaks, and they all got them, but that doesn't, you know, I, I have to walk back there when they're dropping. I know a bunch of guys that with historical data, they're very successful and they track that very well. And the thing that's always boggled my mind is from my own experience with running cameras. And I just want to see if you feel the same way where it sounds like you do, but man, historical data, when you have shifting food sources in the big woods is very hard to track for me because I, when am I going to have that same white oak flat hot again? You know, it might be three or four years before that white oak flats hot. So if I have a really good year and that white oak's hot and I have all this historical data for the next year, how good is that data if that white oak flat isn't hot the following year? I've had it where I'm all jacked up about a system the next year. And I'm like, man, I know historically, like last year, last week of September and first two weeks of October, this area was loaded with big bucks feeding on these white oaks. Next year, I'm all excited. I go in there. It's vacant. There's not a single deer in that system because the white oaks aren't there. So I'm looking at all this historical data in my face like, man, this this data isn't any good to me right now. But I think that the one time that I would use that data is when that white oak flat's hot again. So like, if you can keep that data for three, four years, whatever it takes, that white oak flat becomes hot again. Maybe that data is worth, I can't even get two acorn trees, like two different oak trees to drop at the same time year after year. Like this white oak's hot this year. And so is this one. Two years from now, white oak A is hot again, but B isn't hot for two more years. Like they're so sporadic down here that it's, it's really hard to track that for me, man. I just, I don't know. I'm always trying to figure it out. Uh, I think for me, like maybe historical data is better during the rut with like tracking doe groups. You know, when are they going to come into heat? Have you ever, have you ever seen that? Do you ever, do you track doe groups or anything with your cameras? I don't because it's so hard to tell them apart. You know, like I may have the same three does, but I think it's 10, you know, like, cause I've done that before. If I'm being honest, like years and years ago, I, I went and shot a, a doe on a private piece because my buddy asked me, he told me I could hunt it. And I put a couple of cameras out and dude, it was just pounded. I was like, do you got too many does? I was wrong. It was the same dose. It was the same few dose, you know, and same three or four dose. And it made it look like there it was just all kinds of dose. But after I shot, like I, I really found out, you know, cause I didn't spend a lot of time scouting. I found out that there was none. I made a mistake. So like for me personally, I feel like the in-season scouting is way more important than historical data. Like there's just no substitution, whether it's freaking, june september november or january getting the boots on the ground like there's nothing better to do let's jump into that a little bit so in season scouting what is your thought process are you you typically starting in an area like let's say you have a good deer on camera and you lose that deer he's on a bean field you lose him what are your next steps to try to relocate that deer put more cameras out if it's september i know this ridge back here is loaded with white oaks or half a mile from here is a very good travel corridor and i know in five weeks from now he's probably gonna start running it you know so that's that's the move that i'm i'm making and you know starting about the middle of september is when i go hardcore with my cameras i just don't need to before then because i i told you like here like if you find one good buck you typically find a few 
and you might not find another, you know, a bachelor group, you might not find another one for a while because they're all together. I start there mid-September. If I lose him, I just head to the places to where I think he's going. It's common sense. It's the pinch points. It's the white oaks, the red oaks, the anywhere that I know, or, or doe bedding areas. You know, a lot of those doe bedding areas, they will stay as far as historical. Like, I feel like they do stay closer because I, I think they take more pressure than a, than a buck will, for sure. So I'll start moving into doe bedding areas or not into them, but off of them. I'm really trying to dumb it down because I'm not near as good as the hunter. That's what people says I am. Like everybody looks at all these deer back here and they're like, man, he has like slammed them. And like, they look great back here, but it's just because I won't let a three-year-old deer walk. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like if it's a good one, I'm not going to, or a decent one, like I'm just not going to let it walk where a guy like you or somebody from Iowa, like they're, they're letting the deer walk that I shoot. I would say that my standards are dropping drastically now that I have a family. That's because you don't have any deer to shoot. I mean, that's not helping me. So let's say this. I'm going to give you an example that I had last year, and I kind of want to hear how you would have went about this. No deer to chase, at least none that you know of at the moment. And there's no acorns anywhere. Are you are you going to your, your high traffic areas as far as funnels and stuff still? Is that kind of your thought process? Or you, like, what would your process be at that point? Like, I spent a lot of time walking around looking for acorns. And I just couldn't find any acorns anywhere. So if you would have been in my position last year, what would your thought process have been trying to find a deer? No, no deer, no acorns, right? Yeah, I didn't have any deer to chase at first. And I was really struggling finding acorns. It was like I had a couple white oaks the first week of season, but they were, I mean, barely dropping. And then I didn't have any reds, no chestnut oaks, no nothing. I would have been in Kentucky. I, I, I just out of state vacated. Yeah. And I did that when all my deer died. Me and you had the same thing, uh, exact, exact same thing. Like I found 22 bucks in two days, two booners, like this deer back here. It's 191. Wow. I found him in a 174 in two days. My two number one target deer. <sighs> That thing is unbelievable. Yeah, he's gnarly. I scored it twice, both 191 and some change. He was only four years old. We're going to have to make that the uh, cover of this thing. We'll, we'll post that up on the gram for everybody. I literally packed all of my stuff up, and I went two hours south, just like that. I had buddies down there. It was still in Kentucky. The deer density was lower, but the deer weren't dead, and they were dying all around me, you know? Seven Pope and Youngs and two Booners in two days, 22 bucks total. I just left. Yeah, you know? I feel that. I was I was stubborn, I think, is the biggest problem. Because Kentucky's only a couple-hour drive for you, right? Oh, I can be on Kentucky Public in an hour 45. Yeah, see, I was driving two hours one way. I got you. That's what I would have done. No, I like that, man. I think that... A little slap in the face for you. <laughs> hey, little, you know, we get a, we get a little proud every once in a while. I'm like, no, I'm going to, I'm going to pull a deer out of these woods. And you know what? The hills humbled me big time. You can be the best hunter in the world, but if you ain't got them, you can't kill them. I really respect that, man. There's, there's that, a lot to be said that about that. takes the fun out of it. So last year for me, it was, it was, uh, it really tested my passion for it. And I'm sure that you felt the same way when it happened. Like it really tested the passion for it because man, like I spent, I mean, We've talked about it. I spent probably 60 days in the woods and I bumped one deer. And I mean, I'm in, I'm literally doing every, I'm walking through the middle of clear cuts, trying to just bump deer and find deer sign. And I bumped one deer in 60 days. 
And I was just like, what is, what is going on around here? So, so yeah, it definitely tested the passion, man. But uh, let's get into this real quick. This is a selfish question, but as far as rebounding from EHD, what did, what did you see? How, how are you guys coming back from that? What was the year that it hit you down there real bad? 2019 in that area, it's still not the same. It's not the same. Are you... I haven't been back still four years. And I got buddies that run trail cameras, that hunt there religiously. This place is big, over 8,000 acres, two miles wide, six miles, six and a half miles long. Josh Prophet ain't been back. Would your buddies kind of dictate you going back where they're like, hey, man, the population rebounded? And, yep. you know, I've been thinking about that a lot where I do have some some guys that hunt around some of this stuff, but some of it, I don't have anybody else that hunts around it. And I've decided this year, I'm just vacating some of those spots because I'm I know that 90% of the deer in there died, but I keep asking myself the question, like, when do I go back in and and try to verify if this is worth going to again or not? It's a question I'm battling with a little bit because I I don't have the answer yet. I almost think I'm going to do it during like shed season or something, just a time when it, there's really nothing else going on and just go in. And if I find decent deer sign, maybe I'll say, Hey, or if find a big track. The other thing too, is I've heard from a lot of people that like five years after an EHD outbreak is when you'll have your biggest deer. Have you seen that at all? Have you seen any sign of that? Same thing as you. I haven't seen it, but I've heard it. And like this particular piece that I love to hunt, I I think it was like 2011. It got hit really hard like it did. And then like 2019 or in 2016 on this place, I had 50 Pope and Youngs, two 200 inch deer and seven booners. The game's changed now because it's it's cool to be hunting this way, so it's changed. But I would say that's true. And but like how you and I hunt, I think hunting pressure dictates a lot of that. Not knocking the guys down south at all; they shoot a lot of our two-year-old deer, and I don't get mad at it at all. Like there's so many people who get pissed off about it, but I've been around these guys so long, man. They shoot a 125-inch two-year-old, and they're like, I, how can you get mad at somebody that literally shot the biggest deer they've ever seen? I'm not that selfish. You know what I mean? Like, cause I'm going to find mine. I, so I think it is true. I think that five-year mark, I think it's something good to go by. I haven't personally seen it, but I've, I've had, I have heard it, but I, I do think with the way that the public land hunting is now being so, uh, I don't know, man, you know how it is. It's cool to, it's cool to have a saddle or, or, or lightweight stand and hit the public. So that may deter it a little bit, you know? Um, so I don't know. I went and scouted a bunch of different states this this spring, and my thought process there is okay. Instead of having that like giant goal in Ohio, try to find a good buck and get him on the ground, and then go out of state and have some fun for a couple of years. Josh, I got a got a different question for you here, and you've hunted a ton of public and scouted a ton of public, and you're getting into the management game a little bit. You mind talking about that a little bit? I got a couple of questions if you're if you're down for that. I'm down. Um, cool. I just want to hear your thought process there, man, because you're going from, you're a guy that just hammers miles and works. Like that's, when I think of Josh Prophet, I think of going out and just putting work in and getting on deer. And so now you have a piece of private. What is, what's your process there? What's going through your head so far with that this season? I have full access. I'm the only one that has full access to 297 acres of a big buck mecca. The the farm is a more of an afternoon spot. It's planted in all corn. We have went in and strategically placed two five acre bean fields that are fenced off. We're fencing them off. I'm fencing them off. 
Baiting's legal. There's redneck blinds on here. There's 30 double sets hung. If I'm being honest with you, man, it's just not me. Like, if there's not something bigger than 150, I'm just going to take my kids. And if I do hunt it, I'm not even going to climb up in a pre-hung set. It's going to be the lone wolf on my back. I'm going to do it how I always done it. But it's... I'm not saying it's a pride issue, but something that comes too easy, and I'm not saying that it's going to come too easy, it's just not worth, it's just not how I do it, you know. Now, don't get me wrong, if a giant shows up, I am going to hunt it, and I will I will not hunt it for a bait pile. It's that simple. I just won't do it. We, we, we are baiting on this farm, but I won't sit over a bait pile. I won't sit near it. Um, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to struggle not to ruin the farm. That's what I'm going to do, because... I just like to walk, man. And that's, you know, like, that's what I like to do. Um, and the older I get when I, you know, five years ago when I was killing these deer on this public land and, and, and getting after it, like I took all these big public land tracks. I've been on anywhere from 5,000 acres to 170,000 acres. And I literally hunted them like they were, like I was the only person there. Like they were mine. That's how I hunted them. And like I come up with these plans from year to year and there was this one piece, almost the piece that the deer died on. Like I was ready to buy a lot, like a, a half acre lot and like put something there. And I would have done it if I could have found one cheap enough. But now, now today, dude, I just want to run. Like I want to kill one on this piece. And I'm not saying I figured this 8,000 acres out in a year, but because no means did I, but I killed a deer there and I had good success. Like I'm ready to bounce over here. This 4,000 acres, two count, two counties away. I get bored more. I get, and I'm constantly like wanting to go. And like this private piece, man, I'm driving my truck across the fields. My boots aren't getting dirty, you know? And like, I checked three cameras there this year and I drove up within a hundred yards of them. And it's, I don't think it's for me. Don't get me wrong. If something shows up over 150, I'm going to hunt it. But if anything else, I'm just going to take my daughter. I, I think about that with my son a lot. He's two right now, but in the future, do I want to introduce him into running, gunning on public and seeing five deer a year chasing a giant? Or do I want to secure a decent piece of private and go out and be able to glass deer with him and sit in the stand and see deer and, and make sure that he has enjoyable experiences to where he actually enjoys it? You know, I don't want to ruin it for him. So... To me, looking at that, that's what I'm kind of looking at in the back of my mind too, is that's something that I'm very interested in in the future. So I'll, I'm, I'm curious to hear how that works out for you, man. And I, I feel very similar where, you know, I'm, I would say I'm pretty hard on myself with how much work I put in for it, where, man, if it comes easy, I just don't feel like I deserved it or earned it. And I feel like eventually that's going to catch back up to me. And so every year, like it probably sounds crazy, but every year I go into this whole thing and I just love putting the miles in like you do and being out in the woods. And I just always feel like there's this, it's not a number, but there's this amount of work that I need to do. Like I need to push it right to the very limit of just nothing I got left in the tank before I'll be successful. And I just, I don't know. I just feel like it takes everything I got out of me. And then right when I'm at my breaking point, I end up, I end up getting after a buck. So that's just kind of my thought process, but I feel very similar, man. I love Roman and uh, I love the adventure side of bow hunting. I mean, that's, that's probably why I do it more than any other reason, to be honest with you. Like I don't, I don't scout like you, I don't scout 200 days a year to kill a deer and be done. Like I want to, as soon as that happens, I want to scout again. I think it's because I just love scouting and love being in the woods. I feel like you're very similar to that. Yeah, I'm I'm calling my friend, you know, or taking my daughter, 
when that happens, you know, like I can't, you know, I hunted that, that giant last year and I hated it. I hated the property. I hated hunting the deer and the deer died like the second weekend of November. I couldn't get on this piece of public that I hunted until December 1st. So from, from December 1st till December 28th, I had out 40 plus trail cameras. I've done walked, I don't know how many miles, 400, done drove thousands of miles. And in 28 days, I had a three-year-old 132-inch deer on the ground in almost January. And I've seen five shooters from December 1st to uh, January, or from December 1st to December 28th. And one of them was big, right? I've seen 160-inch deer twice from the stand. Same deer. Um, no close encounters. You know, my, my best view was him literally walking across the cornfield at dark when the sun was down and he was silhouetted, you know, couldn't ask for a better picture of him. So no close encounters, but like just the chase of being out there and running wide open, like that's, that's what I like. Just got really a couple more questions left. And I'd just like to go through, you know, all the cameras you've ran, everything else. You're way more advanced than myself. and. I'd like to just know some of the uh, lessons that you've learned over the years and things, you know, from running cameras and how deer move and don't move and the data you've collected, just some of the top things that you've learned that have molded who you are as a hunter now through cameras. Don't let other people dictate your success. If you want to shoot a 125 inch two year old in Kentucky, like do it because you're doing better than 90% of the people hunting in general, private ground or public. Uh, buy the best gear you can afford, even if it's not the best. Stick with it till you can get something better. Uh, I learned a long time ago, do not mismatch your SD cards with different brand cameras. I've messed them up. Don't ask me how, but I've fresh, straight up fried them. You know, back in the day when I was running like a stealth camera, browning, uh, wild view, whatever, like every camera had its own SD cards. And that's how I how I kept it. I think it's all about the weather. It's all about the fronts. Um, I've seen good movements before fronts. I've seen good movement after fronts. Um, don't let hunting pressure keep you out of the woods. I've killed some of my biggest deer where people told me that they weren't at. Have fun. And the, the day that you put hunting before your family is the day that you probably need to quit. Like, I got four kids and... Um, if they wanted to be with me every day, I ain't gonna lie. I'd just hang it up, you know, until they got older. That's what, because there's, it's just that important to me. So that's all I got for you. Man. Well, hey, Josh, I really appreciate you coming on, man. We'll have to have you back on later this season. And after you kill a deer, we'll do, uh, do a podcast with you because I know you're going to lay a good one down this year. So thanks again for coming on, man. Really appreciate you. Thank you, man. All right, everybody, that is a wrap for today's show. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed today's show, please head over to iTunes and leave a five-star rating and a written review. We will see you next time.